0: Hello and welcome to ERA on Air. As ERA celebrates its centenary and 100 years of leading HVAC and R, we've been profiling prominent people, places, and objects that color the Institute's history via the 100 faces. You can read through those profiles on era100.org.au. We're also taking the opportunity to go further in depth and speak to two of the featured names. Prior to the COVID-19 lockdowns, ERA's communications manager and Ecolibrium editor, Matt Dillon, sat down with Anya Hampton and Sean Treweek in Melbourne. Anya and Sean have a few things in common. Both have had varied careers within HVAC&R, and, and they have played very prominent roles for ERA at critical junctures in its history. Indeed, both have held the Institute's highest office of president. Sean took the helm at a delicate moment during the global financial crisis, when some pivotal decisions were required to be made. Working with management, he helped ERA weather the Tempest to emerge intact from the GFC. Anya, the daughter of one of ERA's earliest female members, was elected ERA's first female president in 2016. In this episode of ERA On Air, we chart Anya and Sean's careers, from what brought them into the so-called hidden industry to how they see it evolving and what role the Institute might play.
1: Happy 100th birthday, ERA! Okay, so we're here today recording an episode of ERA on Air. I'm Matthew Dillon. I'm ERA's communications manager. I'm with two of ERA's distinguished ex-presidents, Anya Hampton and Sean Treweek. So... I was wondering, could I ask you to tell me a little bit about your background and how you found your way to this HVAC&R industry that we know and love?
2: Well, I suppose um, from my perspective, I kind of just fell into it straight out of uni. I, um, uh, or In my undergrad years at Sydney Uni um, back in the day, uh, applied for a number of positions with a number of companies in a number of different industries and ended up picking up a role with uh, NDY at the time back in the mid to late 90s and just sort of fell into HVAC and art from that point. It was something I'd always been interested in. I had opportunity to maybe look at some other different sectors within the mechanical engineering field, but HVAC and R was of interest to me. I kind of liked the construction industry and the variability and variety of projects you work on and people you work with. And for me, that was, um, I suppose, the forerunner to my uh, career over the past 20-plus years, not giving anything away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That background
1: is probably the most common one that you hear that people fall into it that there's no um burning desire as such to join the industry it's is is that the industry's fault do you think
2: look i think as an industry we don't necessarily um publicize ourselves that well we're a little bit hidden Uh, we get hidden amongst the broader construction and infrastructure industries Um, the general public probably doesn't understand hvac and r more than the split system on the wall inside their house or the toilet exhaust fan in their bathroom. So yeah, I think as an industry we potentially need to do more to publicise ourselves. And look, we're not really a sexy industry, I don't I mm-hmm. don't think from that perspective. Anya's looking at me funny when I say that. But Speak for okay. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so I think I think there are other industries out there that, that are potentially or other sectors of the industry that are potentially a bit more vocal and a bit more widely publicised than what HVAC and R is.
1: But Anya, the, there are sexy components of HVAC&R. There's the, the whole ESD side or architectural engineering sort of side of, of the industry.
3: Yeah, definitely. And that's what drew me into it. I started my career in automotive engineering realised fairly quickly that that probably wasn't what I was interested in. But I'd always been really interested in building sustainability and at the time, it wasn't even a thing. I didn't know you could do that for a job. And then I was at a party one day and was chatting to somebody and discovered you could get paid to do it. And they happened to be looking for a graduate engineer. So I switched industries. And But I already had a really good understanding of HVAC and R because my mum was a HVAC engineer. And...
1: An heir member.
3: She was. She was a second female era member. So the first was Gwen Gray in 1967 and then my mum, Elizabeth Romanovsky in 1985, I think it was.
1: So it was, you were fated.
3: I guess so. <laughs> Born into it. <laughs> yeah.
1: So different parts, but both members of the industry, I guess, and both seem like you've... Um made the most of the opportunities that have come your way at different times would you say that's the case Sean
2: yeah look I think so I think I've been fortunate in that I have had a lot of opportunity that has come my way but it's probably also fair to say that I've always been a pretty career driven um, individual so I have tried to make those opportunities for my way um, as well
1: so joining era, mm. I guess division committees and boards and those sort of things, yep. was it? Did you see it as a way of helping the industry or was it more fitting in that career ascension side
2: of things or a bit of both? Look, my story is probably interesting. I actually joined the New South Wales Committee about a week before I became a member. <laughs> so let's just say they mm-hmm. happened in parallel. Uh, it was uh, Mark Henderson at the time, tapped me on the shoulder. He was a member of the New South Wales Committee and he said, really think you should join the committee. We, we need some uh, fresh younger blood in the committee. And I said, okay, I'll give it a go. I'll, I'll have a look at what it's about. Uh, so I literally attended my first committee meeting and joined ERA in the same week. And uh, from there, basically got nominated and voted onto the the board as a New South Wales uh, director. I then moved to Melbourne about three months later. (laughs) And uh, then the next round, I became a Victorian director. And uh, I did basically four sessions on the board and uh, a few years as national president. Was
1: it always the aim to be a president?
2: Or was that something that just evolved? It just kind of evolved. Um, Look, I always wanted to... Once I joined the committee, I actually thought being a member of the board and being able to make a difference um, would be something I wanted to do, and that was that was definitely an outcome of, of doing that. And I think becoming a national president, it was one of those things that, that did sort of fall into my lap as well, being a fairly new member on the board at that point, and the outgoing president at the time, John Boskey, he had to depart with some family health issues at the time, and um, I was almost the last person standing at the time, uh, given that we had a number of other directors who were sort of serving out their last term. So me as a fairly new person coming in, obviously there was a bit of longevity there for me in that role. So yeah, it was something that just fell into my lap at the time.
1: What about you, Anya? What got you
2: involved?
3: So um, about 10 years ago, I um, left my Um, left my job and actually started my own consultancy and I found that was quite isolating so I sort of missed that interaction with other people within the industry and an era conference came up and I thought oh that'd be good I'll go to that and it was fantastic and yeah so I joined then and then I joined the Victorian committee because I think I was chatting to somebody on the board or at the committee and I said oh what do you do you know what does the committee do what do you do and they said oh come on Tuesday and you'll find out (laughs) that was it I was on the committee Um, so fantastic way just to sort of stay in touch with the industry have that you know regular interaction with people and yeah and then when the opportunity came to join the board I was really keen to do that just get some more experience and yeah and start to do more for the organization because I was just getting so much out of it.
1: Sean some people have said to me over the years they don't really get error or understand its reason for being what's your take on this?
2: Yeah, look, I think, and perhaps going back to my previous comment that we don't necessarily market and promote ourselves that well, I think that might be an aspect of people not understanding error. We're also quite a a technically focused institution. And so you, not wanting to use the term loosely, but we're almost an institution of boffins. Um, And what we do, we're really passionate about, but the broader industry isn't necessarily as passionate about what we do as what um we are. Yeah. So I think that's potentially why we're not understood as much, why people will generally go and and focus more on things that say the property council uh, are saying because they're a much more widely recognised association within a similar space to where yeah. era plays.
3: I think that's a real shame because I completely I, I agree, agree with that sentiment yeah. but if you look at HVAC and R, we are so deeply embedded in everybody's lives at every moment. I mean, I'm drinking a glass of water here that's nice and chilled. You know, we're sitting in this room with fresh air and air conditioning. Well, not working particularly well. <laughs> but, you know, people take what we do for granted. And yet really they couldn't function at all without us. So it's such a shame that not only the air is not well known, but that the industry is just so, so unwell known. I think we deserve a lot more recognition than we get.
1: Is that changing, say, within the broader building industry, built environment industry? Like a few years ago, a lot of people were talking about their desire for an integrated design practice and everyone sitting at the table and designing together, but there was still a lot of tension between, say, architects and engineers and engineers and contractors. Do you think that sort of broader, has there been a broader sort of building of respect for? mechanical engineering or is that a sort of a loaded comment (laughs) are you just the guys that
2: put in the air conditioning it's probably a little bit of a loaded comment look i think um you're always going to have the disconnect between architects and engineers it's the whole left brain right brain approach i think that certainly plays out but i I, look I, i also i also think the the r in hvac and r um and gets it gets played down very dramatically you think about the cold chain um Food storage, we could not live our daily lives um, without refrigerators, freezers, all of those things. The way we shop, the way we go about our day to day business would be very different without refrigeration.
3: When you think about it, that's changed our whole society. It has. You know, the fact that we can grow food at a certain time of year, store it, and then deliver it to people has freed up the amount of people who need to work in agriculture. And that's led to, you know, that's allowed us to industrialise at a much higher rate. Mm. So it's, but yeah, as you say, people just have no concept, they don't think of it.
1: No, they no. should. What about that question of consultants versus contractors? Is that a real,
2: is that a real thing, or is that does that get sort of played up a little bit? I look inevitably. I think there's there's some truth to the um, uh, the conflict between consultants and contractors, and it does depend on which. Part of the country or which part of the world you're in. There's very different relationships depending on where you are. If you looked at uh, the UK, for example, there's a much more acrimonious relationship between consultants and contractors where consultants generally have more of a say over what contractors can do as a, as a superintendent of the works in Australia where we need to partner a lot more with contractors there's a much there's a much greater reliance on design and construct or um, or alliance type contracts in uh, both property and infrastructure type works so it's not us versus them it has to be a bit more of a partnering relationship and that's evolved uh, certainly over the last 20 years i've seen that evolve and it continues to evolve and will continue to evolve so yeah we have certainly seen some of that Acrimonious relationship, but I like to think that we're actually starting to work a lot better as a collaborative team these days, particularly where design responsibility is moving from one party to the other partway through the design rather than someone designs it, then someone builds it.
1: What about your experience, Anya? Because you, although you've worked with the bigger consultancies, you, you these days you're working for yourself or, or your own consultancy. Are you in a different part of the industry? Do you have a different sort of view of things?
3: Our company predominantly works at the sort of smaller end of the of the industry. So rather than doing the, you know, premium grade buildings, we're probably doing more of the B and C grade buildings, which, is, um, which has actually been really interesting to see how um, HVAC design, in particular how ESD has evolved in that space because it's not something that's been driven sort of from above. It's sort of had to be pushed a little bit more. ESD is a little bit different in that we're sort of providing a lot of solutions that then other um, disciplines are documenting. so often by the time you know there's there's input from the contractor it's kind of gone through a few stages before it gets back to us and I think the relationship is really improving just simply because they're actually starting to get a lot more involved. You know, for a long time, you'd sort of, you'd do your work and then you'd never hear anything in construction unless you were doing a Green Star project, whereas now you're actually getting contractors calling up with queries and substitutions and things. So I think that's that's a really positive change that, that we've been seeing over the last few years. So basically there seems to be an actual desire to implement the ESD things as they're designed. Yeah. Desire is possibly the wrong word, more of a requirement
2: too. Mm-hmm.
1: Is there a project that you've worked on that really stands out as being
2: particularly satisfying? There's probably – there's a number of projects which, have, um, which I've really enjoyed working on over the years, but probably um, one of the ones that I've enjoyed the most was actually a – It's probably these days considered to be maybe a little bit of a boring project. It was a commercial office tower. It was up in Sydney. It was 72,000 square metres of net lettable area. So it it was a big commercial office tower, but it was nothing out of the ordinary. Now, the thing that made that a really unique and interesting project was the project team, and this is the broader project team, project managers, architects, the client, services engineers, the structural engineers, the acoustic consultant everybody on that team worked together really well as a team that's actually what made that a really unique and exciting project to work on it was the collaboration of that team project finished on time on budget went really well client was really happy project team was really happy it was just a really easy project to work on and that's what made it unique you often don't see those every now and then but when you get a chance to work on something like that It's really good and I I repeat that story to to graduates coming into the business when they ask me, well, what's what's a really good project you've worked on? And I give them that example. It's not because it had the best technology or it wasn't because um, there was a good solution or a particular system in there. It was because of that team working together for a good three or four years. That said, we're not far from Fed Square and its thermal
1: labyrinth, and we're not far from CH two and its uh, phase change material and wavy concrete ceilings and yellow turbines and external water cooling. Is there any? Is there any bit of green bling that
2: that you've always wanted to design but haven't had a chance to? Oh, Loaded question. Um- Look, I suppose I always like doing something new and something different. Um, So, yeah, from my perspective, some of those things you mentioned, I haven't actually worked on projects where they've been designed and installed. So, yep, would I love to do that? Of course I would. However, in my role that I'm in these days, I don't really get the opportunity to do a lot of design on projects these days. Um, But I'd be more so looking for the people in my business to be able to, to work on those types of projects and bring those opportunities to the table. But I'd also like, um, uh, or certainly my business, but the industry, to be looking at new and different ways of doing things as well. It's not just all about putting technology into buildings. It might be about doing less in buildings to have a better outcome. I think there's other ways we can start approaching these buildings when we start talking about net zero energy and those types of things. It's not necessarily always about the technology and the the fancy systems that you put in. I think there's other things that you can do.
3: Yeah. I've always wanted to put in a geothermal system. <laughs> and it's it's been floated on so many projects and it just never quite gets there. I've actually so. done one of those. I have damn
2: it.
1: I guess um what Sean was talking about having less need for kit is something mm. that we're reading and hearing more well, about these days. Yeah, it's funny,
3: like I was thinking about one of my favourites and it was a, a little redevelopment of a warehouse in Collingwood and they wanted to turn it into an office space and they didn't want to air condition it and they had this big sloping roof, and they wanted to put a giant skylight in to get daylight. And they said, oh, this would be great. And I said, oh, my God, you've got this giant solar load that you're going to have coming straight in. How are you going to do this? And so we did a lot of thermal modelling, a lot of solar modelling, you know, really bumped up the insulation and said, all right, how how can we position the staff, how can we what kind of conditions are going to be acceptable to them. And because it was, you know, the client was the tenant, they were really on board with understanding that it's going to be hot at certain times of year and there might even be times where we have to close early. And so, yeah, we did all that. And in the end, they were so happy. And, of course, I stuck data loggers everywhere and, you know, spent a few days sitting in there with them on some really hot days. And it just performed exactly as expected. And it was just such a great feeling to, A, know that your modelling works, but B, just to, do something that you go we've created an environment that these people love working in and it's not using any energy really because it's you know they haven't got any air conditioning and so to sort of think yeah you can do that in an office felt pretty good.
1: The way you're talking about that and the fact that you had the flexibility to actually sit in the office with the client for a few days sort of I guess that's one of the um, things that you can get Mm. working in a smaller consultancy. It
3: is yeah and I think that's one of the biggest issues we have is that so often we don't get that feedback after the fact. You know, the building goes into construction, goes into operation. You know, you ring up, you say, "Hey, you know, can we come around for a visit?" Oh, you know, the person in charge now doesn't know what's going on. You know, and and you just don't get that opportunity to go in there and see how the buildings work. Often that makes it challenging.
1: We've been talking a little bit about um, changes, but what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the HVAC and R industry over the time that you've
2: been in it? Look, I think I've, I've already mentioned um, the change in, in contracts and the move towards more design and construct and alliance type contracting. I think that's been a big change. But I think we're actually now on the cusp of a lot more change around uh, digitisation and automation within the industry. I think we're starting to see some of that now. But over the next five to 10 years, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. So automation of, um, of design in particular, so particularly where you've got repetitive type design and design that's based around codes and standards, you can program a bot to do that rather than have an engineer sitting there going brain dead by doing the same repetitive task over and over and over again. We're starting to see a little bit of that come in. Certainly things like modular construction, uh, off-site fabrication, uh, those things are are definitely coming into the industry. And I think we're, we're going to see a lot more of that in the future as well. And what that's going to result in is shorter timeframes on projects and shorter time during construction and hopefully safer construction as well. The more you can fabricate off-site in a controlled environment, the safer it is for people actually physically installing things on-site.
1: What about from your perspective, Anya?
3: Well, when I started in sustainability about 15 years ago, it really almost didn't exist. Section J was pretty new, Green Star was very new, Neighbours was new. It was something that was happening at the real high end and now it's a planning condition. You know, and I would say the planning conditions are kind of almost on par with where Green Star was when it started. So, you know, see that sort of that's come in at the absolute base. You can't build a building now without considering sustainability. And then what that's meant for building services. You know, we've just seen a huge improvement in the efficiency of our systems, in the comfort that we can deliver with that, just the comfort of our buildings. And so I think that's going to continue to grow. I think it's not even a wish anymore. It's just an absolute given that that kind of thing will be, will be considered. And then, yeah, I'd agree with Sean, certainly digitisation and the automation. We've seen a big difference in the way systems are documented and specified. And there's a lot more detail in that now. There's a lot less of that should-be-right attitude.
1: That maybe was prevalent. 15 years ago? Yeah. Like mandatory green, I guess, mandatory sustainability. Is that true of buildings outside the CBD, you think?
3: Yes, pretty much all councils, certainly in Victoria, um, New South Wales has their basic scheme, but certainly in Victoria almost all councils require you to do an ESD assessment um, at the planning stage. And that the level of design detail that's driven at planning, you're almost in design documentation Right from planning, you've got your rainwater tank size. You've got a lot of information about your building services, about your building fabric, about your daylight levels, and that's and that now becomes the planning condition. So you know, try getting rid of it down the track. It's very hard.
1: Not going to happen. It was uh, again another loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) That was it seems to be the type I ask. But I was asking because I live um, 11k from the city, but I have another CBD out my back fence. That's Box Hill that has a a bunch of 30 story towers and I'm just skeptical about how sustainable some of those glass facade buildings might be so I'm happy to hear that they at least have to hit minimum standards
3: Yeah they do yeah
1: Sean this is more sort of directed at you um because you've been at the consultancy level um the bigger consultancy level for most of your career and if you think about some of the names that you've worked for they've They've nearly all undergone mergers and acquisitions. Sort I of. might have been through a few in my years, yes. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that the nature of the industry or is it a trend? Is it a global trend? It seems like local consultancies get bored and become part of a larger international group. Is, is it happening and why is it happening?
2: Look, I think it's happening um, for a number of reasons. Um, And obviously, we've seen a lot of consolidation of the industry over the last five to 10 years. You've got a lot of publicly listed big international conglomerates, usually headquartered out of either Europe or the US or Canada, looking for a broader footprint. So for them to be able to basically provide the shareholder returns they're not going to do that through organic growth only. They need to continually acquire businesses. And you get to a certain critical mass in a particular country. If you've got more than, as a consultancy, 20 or 30% market share in a particular market, you're probably too big. So when the market turns, that's not a a good position. What they'll tend to do is they'll then geographically expand. So instead of getting too big in one country or one region, they'll then be a bit smaller, but will go and acquire businesses in other regions. So we've certainly seen a lot of that happening in Australia. Australia was a, it's been a happy hunting ground, I think it's fair to say, for the last 10 years or so. We've got a very stable government. From a Global sense, we yeah. may not necessarily agree that we have a stable government, but when you look at the political situation globally, we actually have a very stable government. We have a stable economy, so therefore the um, the level of resilience of the local market is actually quite positive. So the big internationals they see the Australian market, they see it as a, they see there being a lot of potential. Um, there are very well trained um, engineers within the consultancy sector within Australia. And so they, they see the opportunity to acquire some of these businesses, link them in with some of their other global parts of their business, and basically try and get to one plus one equals three. So <laughs> if you can provide that global expertise in a particular sector or market that you operate in, uh, and you can win more work in that space, that's creating value for their business. So I think that's why we've we've seen a lot of that consolidation over the years. It's probably fair to say that I think we're, relatively at the tail end of it now what you're now going to see is a number of spur companies set up so once the consolidation happens people inevitably leave after a period of time they'll go set up their own business they'll grow that business then there'll probably be another round of consolidation in 10 years time
1: and you would you like edifice to be bought by a global multinational oh,
3: for the right price sure <laughs>
1: <laughs> in the meantime it, it gives you flexibility and I guess, nimbleness that you may not get. That's
3: right, yeah, and that's why I've done it and that's why I've stuck with it for so long.
1: Today we've got 50-50 representation in gathering of ex-presidents and uh, HVAC and R engineers. That's not the case in the industry. Is it changing, do you think?
3: The statistics say no. Um, There's been very little change over the last 10 to 15 years. That's both at the university level and at at the coalface, so to speak the universities have seen some increase in the number of women going into engineering, but not so much graduating. And there's about a 30% dropout rate. So it suggests that we're encouraging women to go into engineering without necessarily considering the reasons why they didn't in the first place, which I suspect is probably for most of them, they're just not interested. You know, it's not something that they're perhaps passionate about. I think, you know, we, we tell women you have all the choice, you can be anything you want in the world. And then they go, cool, I'm going to go be this. And we say, no, no, you should be an engineer.
2: (laughs) It's a tough one. What's your take on that, Sean? Yeah, look, I agree. It is is certainly a tough one and um, it is difficult. I mean, I've got two daughters. Uh, I've got one who will absolutely run for the hills as soon as you mention the word engineer and the other one who has joined the robotics club at her school and she loves anything to do with STEM. So I'm not necessarily pushing her to go into engineering, but I'm obviously trying to open her eyes to the opportunities that there are in that, in that field. And she, she has to make the ultimate decision about which way she wants to go. But I think um, all of us are responsible to some extent just to, to start that education process and start it young. I mean, my daughter's 11, um, but she's really interested in programming and robotics and those types of things. So I'm encouraging that, of course. Um, but yeah, we do have we do have a responsibility to educate at a primary and a high school level, and not just waiting until university level as well.
3: Yeah, and I think also the way we market the engineering industry. You know, you you think of the the material that's out there, and it's all people in hard hats holding a drawing outside an oil refinery or a or a mine site, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that engineering is all high vis vests, whereas or
2: brown cardigans,
3: or brown cardigans. I think for women in particular, there's been, for example, there's been a big increase in women going into mechanical engineering when sustainability started to become a big thing because that was something they were interested in. And certainly if we can push the human side of engineering, I think that will encourage a lot more women into as well because fundamentally what you do as an engineer each day is you make people's lives better. But that's not what it's seen. It's just seen as you're you know, typing numbers into a calculator and calculating beam widths. If we can do a better job of explaining what engineers do, I think we'll get not only more women, but just a better range of people being interested in the industry.
1: On that point, Sean, I mean, what does the industry miss by not recruiting women into it? As your CEO of Mineheart now, you're obviously, you know, recruitment is, falls under your area of responsibility. How
2: do you see that? Look, what we miss is diversity of thought. Um, men and women, we're different um we have different thought processes different thought patterns what we want out of out of life what we want out of the buildings that we occupy they can be different and you can't necessarily design a building design a system to suit um the entire demographic that's out there if everyone designing it is from one very distinct part of that demographic you have to have that diversity otherwise the solutions we provide because that's what engineers do we 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 solve problems we provide solutions that's in a nutshell that's what we do and you can't do that if you don't as a collective understand every side of the equation and it's not just gender diversity it's 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 diversity in every sense we need to um engender within the industry
1: i know and you, you have um quite strong thoughts we have had in the past around flexibility in the workplace and what i understand that men should possibly have the same flexibility that that women workers have
3: yeah i think The modern woman is told she can have everything and with that comes the expectation that she should do everything. And that's something we put on ourselves as much as coming externally. But what it means is that women demand flexibility because they're often the primary carer for children, for their parents. So they they need those those flexible working arrangements. And then because they have flexible working arrangement, they take on the lion's share of the child rearing and the looking after the elderly parents. So it's sort of this this cycle. Whereas if you can give men the flexibility, you know, we we expect that our men now take um, an equal responsibility in raising the children. You know that that dad who leaves at seven o'clock in the morning and comes home and kisses the kids good night—that's a thing of the past. So we expect fathers to be as involved in um, children's lives as their mothers are, but we're not giving them the flexibility in the workplace to do that. And similarly, by that, it's very difficult to be a productive and resourceful worker. If you're constantly having to run off to pick the kids up or grab them from school because they're sick or take mum to a doctor's appointment, so if you can give both partners the opportunity to take on that role, it means that they both get the opportunity to take on the more interesting projects at work that sometimes require longer hours or a bit of travel, or they can get to error events in the evening.
1: Engineering is also, um, by reputation, a hours heavy occupation as well. How does the balance work?
2: It's not an easy balance. And particularly for for a consulting business, but you're effectively selling IP and selling hours to your clients and to the market. So there has to be a balance. Look, I think the industry has moved forward quite a way in terms of uh, technology. So... Flexible working needs the technology backbone to, to be able to support it. So you can, if you need to take, you, take your son or daughter to the doctor at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, um, you don't lose the entire afternoon of work. You, you can actually log on from home and catch up on a bit of work that evening when when your kids have gone to bed or whatever you need to do um, to be able to juggle things. So there is that juggling that's needed. Yes, I agree the engineering sector is a fairly hours-intensive part of the economy. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to spend those hours between 9am and 5pm sitting in an office in the city somewhere. I think gone are the days of the nine to five workday. People need the flexibility. I've got people in my business that they they just don't function in the mornings. They're hopeless. They're great at seven o'clock at night, why aren't we allowing them the flexibility to shift their day if they're more productive at seven o'clock at night and they're useless at 9am let them come in two hours later and shift their work day or vice versa do it earlier let them do what they need to do to get the outcomes it's not about measuring hours it's actually about outcomes and i think we need to focus more as an industry on the outcomes that people produce rather than the contact hours
1: personally what's your secret to to fitting so much in i remember uh, at one point you were doing an MBA course you had a senior job and you were president of
2: era um i'm really good at juggling (laughs) now look from my perspective i've always been able to plan my time pretty well perhaps i'm unique in that situation i know others probably can't plan the way i do and that's okay but for me it's it's really just being mindful about trying to maintain a level of balance because there have been times where i've completely gone one way and just worked myself to the bone and then you find you literally for the next week you, you you're non-functioning because you just you just need a week to To calm down and wind down from that so i've been very mindful over the last five or ten years about trying to maintain or find and maintain a a balance in my life between between work between personal time between kids and family a whole host of things
3: i think that's a really important point with the flexible working arrangements is that once you have the ability to work anywhere with that starts to creep that expectation that you'll work anywhere. So, you know, your boss emails you at 10 o'clock at night and you feel obliged to respond, which is pretty ridiculous, but that's, but that's certainly what's happening. And so, you know, your work day is now no longer 9 to 5, it's 7 till 10. You know, giving people the permission to say, I might send you an email at 10 because that's a good time that suits me, but I don't expect you to respond until it suits you. So if that means I don't hear from you until tomorrow morning after you've been to the gym or whatever then so bear. And I think that's something that not just our industry but in general as a society we still coming to grips with because it is incredibly easy to burn out, you know. And that's one thing I found sort of working for myself, having that total flexibility around my hours, suddenly realising that, no, all that meant was that I was working all hours. And that I would put the kids to bed and then sit back down at the computer and then I'd get dinner going and sit back down and write a couple of emails and that they never switched off. And so that's something I've worked on over the last couple of years is drawing some really strong boundaries around this is work time, this is family time, um, to the point where I don't have email on my phone anymore, things like that, just to make sure that when I'm off, I'm off.
1: It's a good call to make. What would you say, Anya? And I guess you've touched upon it a little bit, but what would you say are the most important lessons that you've learned in your career?
3: Don't do any work till you get assigned an agreement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I learned that one a couple of times. Sadly, you can always be surprised, and that um, there's always something. There's there's always a lot more to learn, and to never take anything for granted. And not to be afraid to stand up when you think something hasn't been done right or documented right. And not to assume that, oh, they'll fix that. To actually say, we need to look at this. That's been a real key thing.
2: I think a key one is um, that everyone's allowed to make mistakes. We work in a fairly complex industry. There's lots of moving parts. And to try and pull everything together so it works seamlessly is almost impossible. People are going to make mistakes. But the rule is you can make a mistake... Just make sure it's not a big one, and don't do it twice. <laughs> and fix it. And fix it. That sort of
1: implies that you you've made you've made a mistake or two in the past.
2: Everyone makes mistakes. I won't necessarily admit mistakes I've made, but that's okay. <laughs>
1: Final question, Anya: What's the best advice that you've been given along the way?
3: Just do a good job.
1: Simple as that.
3: Yeah. I think my high school motto, that which you do, do well, has just stuck with me all my life. And it's certainly the advice I've just been given is just just do your job and do it well and, yeah, you'll stay out of trouble.
2: Cool one. Sean? I think probably the one bit of advice I was given was um, back yourself um, and manage your own career path because you're the best person to manage it. Other people can help and they can guide but in the end, it's your career, you have to manage that path and you have to develop your skills and abilities um, as you go along.
1: Well, thank you very much for your time today on this episode of Error On Air. It's really informative. So thanks to Sean Trawick, who's the CEO of Mineheart. And thank you to Anya Hampton, who's the Managing Director of Edifice. Managing... Managing Director in Grand Poo Bar and...
3: And Chief Coffee Maker.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for your time. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Matt.
2: A centenary of error... And a hundred years of leading the heating, heating ventilation,
3: ventilation, air conditioning and, and refrigeration,
2: refrigeration industry.
3: industry. From notable faces
2: to memorable events while looking ahead to the future of the industry. Here's to the next hundred years and to the members who shape our world.
0: That's all for this episode of ERA on Air. If you liked what you heard, if you learned something new, or if you're interested in HVAC and R, please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it. I'm Mark Spencer. Thank you for listening. And please stay tuned for our next episode. You can find out more about ERA and the ERA on Air podcast at era.org.au.